I'd like us to uh, turn again to chapter 9 of uh, Isaiah, that passage we read, uh, headed here uh, for, to us, a child is born. And we perhaps focus on verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. It would be no exaggeration to say that Jesus is the turning point of human history. When we look at any event that has taken place in the history of the world, it is always related to the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. It either took place B.C., before Christ, or it has taken place A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, as it's put in Latin, and we know that there are many people today who refuse to use B.C. or A.D. They don't want anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, so they've come up with this alternative way of dating. They call it C.E. So, for instance, uh, if you had something that took place in 50 B.C., they would say it took place in 50 uh, B.C.E., that is, before the Common Era. And to me, it seems to be very... Um, dishonest because they're using a system of dating that has been in use for almost 2,000 years and they're simply changing the wording, they're changing the jargon. Well, Jesus is indeed the turning point of world history. He's the fulcrum of world events. In fact, he marks the focal point of all creation. In Colossians, we have that lovely picture. He is the image of the invisible God. If we ever wonder what God is like, then we look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, as we read also in the beginning of John's gospel. Uh, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He has, the, precedent. He has the, the precedence in all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Quite remarkable, isn't it, when you consider the, the sheer depth of these words that speak to us of who uh, Jesus is. And when we consider God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead needs nothing outside uh, of itself, if I can choose my, I would have to be careful when speaking of God in, in my choice of uh, pronouns, but God needs nothing outside of himself. Within the Godhead, there is perfect harmony, there is perfect unity, and uh, there is perfect love and fellowship. And yet God, through sheer grace, desires to share that love, to share that fellowship with ordinary men and women and boys and girls such as we are gathered here uh, this evening. There are many religions in the world and uh, they claim that the God whom they worship is the one true God. Uh, but you cannot say of any of those other so-called gods that they are love. And the reason is simply that love has to have an object. Muslims will tell you that the God they worship is a solitary being. He is a monad. He's not one of three. Uh, they deride the Trinity. Uh, but we know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because that's how he has revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture. Uh, 
Imagine a God who is a solitary being somewhere out there in outer space long before the, the cosmos was created. You could never say that he is love. You could never say that he knows what love is because love has to have an object. And within, within the Godhead, the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Love must have an object. When a couple come together and marry, the man loves the woman and the woman loves the man. You cannot simply say that. I could never say I love because it would be meaningless. Love has to have an object. Well, God created the universe for a purpose and he, means he sustains it constantly. He's ever at work bringing about his eternal purposes to bear as he builds his church and as he gathers a people from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. He is at work to bring his eternal plans to ultimate fulfillment and he leaves nothing to chance. He is in control. God is totally sovereign in all that he uh, does. And when a child is born, and we're looking here in this these passages of Scripture, we're looking at a child that is born, and here in Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 9, we're 700 years B.C., 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a child is born, the birth is subsequently announced. I'm sure all of you here, when your children were born, you put a notice in the Courier or the Stornoway Gazette or whatever uh, newspaper uh, you read at the time. And here we have 700 years before the child is even conceived, and yet there is an announcement being made publicly that this child will one day be born. The birth of the the time of the birth of Jesus was set in eternity, as was the time and purpose of his death and also of his resurrection. And when we consider the, the fall, when we consider how our first father and mother rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, how they disobeyed God, and, and by so doing, sin entered into the world, we, we must never ever think that Jesus was born uh, ultimately as the result of some hastily conceived plan to overturn the consequences of sin. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus is plan A and always has been plan A. God is not the author of sin. When he made our first mother and father, when he made mankind, humanity, he gave us free will. He gave us the option to exercise that free will. We're not automatons, we're not robots. And sadly, our first father and mother exercised that free will, and they did so by disobeying their creator. And subsequently, they fell from grace, just as God knew they would. But long before the fall, long before the fall, way back in eternity, God had prepared the safety net to redeem fallen sinners. He planned even in eternity to restore the relationship that would be fractured, the relationship between him and us that would be fractured by our sin and to bring ultimate reconciliation. In Peter's first letter, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, 
He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And the first announcement of the coming into the world of Jesus was made in the Garden of Eden. It was the first evangelical promise, and it was a promise that God made to Satan himself. But he made it for the encouragement of the couple who had been deceived. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He, a male descendant of the woman who had been deceived, no time frame given, but one day he would come into the world and he would put right all the things that sin had put wrong in this dark and sin-sick world in which we live. And uh, he, the descendant, would one day crush Satan's head. He will deal him a mortal blow, but it would be at great pain and great suffering to himself. And we know that when we look at the cross, when we read Isaiah 53, when we see so many other passages of Scripture, Psalm 22, that speak of the suffering of Christ there on the cross of Calvary, the suffering that he underwent in order to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And the greatest suffering of all for Christ was not the physical suffering. When he saw the shadow of the cross looming over him in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Luke tells us that he was uh, sweating drops like blood, it wasn't the thought of the physical pain that troubled him, but it was the thought of his father's beloved countenance being turned away from him for the first and only time in all eternity. And there was nothing in the experience of Jesus. There was nothing in the experience of God the Son uh, for uh, that moment when his Father's beloved countenance would be turned away from him because the Father cannot look upon sin and his Son was made sin. He took upon himself your sin and mine. My 11-year-old son Johnny said to me back in Easter, he said to me, Shen, why did God have to look away from his son when he was on the cross? That's a wonderful question, isn't it, from a boy of 11 years of age. Maybe the Lord is working in his heart. I certainly do uh, hope so. But biblical, the, the first gospel promise came as a, a ray of light when darkness had descended into the Garden of Gethsemane. And biblical revelation comes in stages as we work our way through the scriptures. We find more and more is being revealed to us. Many hundreds of years or perhaps even thousands after the fall, God promised Abraham that through one of his descendants, all the nations on earth would be blessed. And Jesus said of him, Abraham saw my day. Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it with the eye of faith. He believed the promises that God had given him. He didn't question the promises of God. If God had stated that this was going to take place, then he believed that that is exactly what would happen. And then 700 years BC, when we were reading that short passage there in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, Jerusalem was under threat, and the Lord told Judah's King Ahaz to stand firm in his faith and to trust the Lord for deliverance, and he gave him a promise. 
The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Many people deride that prophecy because when you go back into the original Hebrew, the, the word that is translated here in our modern translations as uh, virgin does not necessarily speak of a virgin, but of a young woman. But God was giving a promise for the future. And what sort of promise would it be, would it be for God to say that the young woman would be with child? That's, that's hardly a promise, is it? Because virtually every child is born to a young woman. Most children are born to women when they are still fairly young. And if that was the case, how could anybody ever pinpoint a specific child at a specific time as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? The Hebrew refers to a young woman of marriageable age. And in the strict moral society of Israel, then such a young woman would have been a virgin. And when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek in the third century BC in the city of Alexandria in Egypt, because by that time most of the Lord's people were speaking Greek rather than Hebrew, and many of them couldn't read the original scriptures. And so the decision was made to translate them into Greek. And the translators chose the word virgin because they understood. And that was precisely what the Lord was stating, that the child of this prophecy would be born to a virgin. And sadly, as we read on in chapter 7 of Isaiah, Judah's king lacked faith. He would not entrust himself to the Lord. And as a result, Judah eventually collapsed and its people went into exile. But God's promise for the future would prevail. And in Isaiah chapter 9, those first rays of light begin to shine even brighter, revealing even more to us clearly the source. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has has dawned. People were living in the shadow of death. And we're still living in the shadow of death. But a light has dawned, a light that gives us hope for the future. When John the Baptist was born, his father Zechariah uh, prophesied by the Holy Spirit, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. We live in an age and we live in a time of great unbelief, secular humanism, atheism, false religions, godless philosophies, and so so much more. Whichever way we turn today in our society here, in the West or wherever we go in the world, there is great spiritual darkness. But in the midst of it all, there is light. And Jesus is that light. He is the light of the world. What an amazing statement to make when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Here, one man, one individual, uh, amongst millions of people living in the world, 
and he can see, I am the light of the world. The world would have us believe today that Jesus is one light amongst uh, many, and there are many communities all over the United Kingdom. They don't like to celebrate Christmas. It's a, it's a celebration of many religions. It's a, a time of lights that reflect the beliefs of many philosophies and many religions. They don't want to offend uh, people. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And perhaps even more amazing is the fact that he points to his people. He points to you and to me. And he says, you are the light of the world. And uh, the fact is that if we are the light of the world, then we mustn't hide it. We mustn't put it under a bowl or a bushel, as it puts in the old English. We're to lift that light so that it can be seen. Uh, people noted that the disciples had been with Christ. Is there anything evident in our lives that would indicate that we have spent time in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? When Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone because he had been in the presence of the living God. Now, I'm not expecting our faces to shine because we've spent an afternoon meditating or, or praying, but is there anything evident in our lives to indicate that we have spent time with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, the light of the world, there is hope and there is rescue from the grip of sin. And let us never be deceived. Sin has us in its grip. And by ourselves, we cannot free ourselves. We cannot loosen it. A friend of mine is um, a, telling me she's troubled by mice in the loft, and so I said, well, get a trap. And uh, you know, you're all familiar with mouse traps. Once the mouse is caught in that trap, then it cannot by any means extricate itself. It's caught up. It can only be released if somebody pulls back the spring. And that's how it is with sin. Sin has us in its grip. Whatever sin we might be caught up in, and the sin that perhaps troubles you might not be the sin that troubles me, but we can only release its hold upon us by turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's love is revealed to us in Jesus. He is God's beloved Son, and through him and only through him, God's love is extended to us. Remember when Esther went into the presence of her husband, King Xerxes, and she went fearful, not knowing whether he would allow her uh, to, to come into his presence and to, and to ask her the question that she wanted to ask. But he extended the scepter to her. And she went up and she touched the tip of the scepter. That meant that he was allowing her to come safely into his presence, something that people were not allowed to do in that particular culture. Jesus is the royal scepter that God extends to us as an act of peace towards uh, sinners. And as both Isaiah state in this passage here, and as Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, states in that lovely a prophecy, without the light that comes from heaven, we're living in the shadow of death. It's a fearful and it's a hopeless situation from which we cannot extricate ourselves. As it says in the psalm, he took me from a fearful pit. Uh, sometimes... A, on holiday up in Lewis, I remember coming across a, 
uh, I suppose, what you would call a fearful pit. It was like a hole in the ground, and the sides were slippery peat, and it was filled with water. And I wondered how many uh, hapless sheep might have fallen into that particular uh, pool and were totally unable to extricate themselves. That's how it is for us. We're in that fearful pit, but only when the Lord comes and reaches in and draws us out uh, can we find a salvation. Without the light, uh, we are living in the shadow of death, a fearful and a hopeless situation that grips all of humanity uh, without a fail. Uh, all living creatures ultimately face death. We have no answer to it, and we have no defense against it. Man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. That's an awful thought, isn't it? If we come to the end of our days and we do not have an advocate who's going to defend us at the throne of grace, what will we do? And we're told in Revelation, those who would not entrust themselves to Jesus, when they're hauled up before the presence of God, we read that they will call on the mountains and the rocks to fall and cover them from the face of he who sits upon the throne and the face of the Lamb. It need not be that situation for any one of you who come here to this church, because this is a church where the gospel has been faithfully proclaimed year in and year out, and there is no reason why anybody who has sat in these uh, chairs, these seats, these pews, or whatever you call them, uh, should be fearful of the day of judgment. Because if we know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, then we know that he died for our sins. He is our advocate. He will speak up on our behalf at the throne of grace. And to be judged by our maker is a fearful prospect. It is a terrible thing, we read in Hebrews 10, to fall into the hands of the living God. But it needn't come to that, because in God's eternal plan to save sinners, Jesus came into the world, just as prophesied here back in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, just as prophesied uh, here in Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. We have a wonderful and an amazing uh, Savior. He, he was conceived, as we read in the New Testament, by the power of the Holy Spirit it, uh, to reveal that he is, as the angel informed Mary, the Son of of God, mighty God, as we were reading there in Isaiah chapter 9, as the Lord states through Isaiah, mighty God. He didn't become mighty God. He was mighty God before he became a child. He was wonderful counselor before he even uh, was uh, uh, conceived. And when the Magi came uh, seeking, they didn't come to seek the one who would one day be born the king of the Jews. They came to the one who was born the king of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews from the moment of birth. He was the king of the Jews from the moment of conception. And I hope God willing to look at the um, account of the Magi's journey uh, next week, if the Lord um, permits. Mankind fell into sin, and in God's amazing plan of redemption, uh, only a man can atone for the sins of humanity. And there is no man who has ever lived who is good enough. As it says in the Easter hymn, 
there is none, uh, there was none good enough to pay the price of sin, but only he, Jesus, could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. God the Son, born of the Virgin Mary, born sinless, not because of her, but because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. She needed a savior as much as anyone else. We, we see that in her song in Luke chapter 1, verse 47. And there, as we were reading, Joseph, son of David, said the angel, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, uh, the one who saves, the one who saves us from our sins. People of other religions think of Jesus in many different ways. Gandhi himself uh, thought the Sermon on the Mount was, was wonderful, but he never ever came to entrust himself uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many people who say that Jesus said wonderful and, and amazing things, that he did extraordinary miracles, that we can believe that Jesus did all these things. But unless we believe that he died in our place as our Savior, paying the penalty for our sins, then we will find the door of heaven remains firmly closed. And at this time of year, when extra people come into church and they see the uh, the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They would like to keep him there. They would like to see him frozen in a time warp, the helpless baby lying in a manger, because he threatens nobody, although, of course, he did threaten King Herod. But this baby had a task to accomplish, not as a baby, not even as a small child, but as a man, because 30 years on from his birth, he went to the cross, and that's how our sins are forgiven. Jesus went to the cross to suffer and to die for the sins of God's people. But not, that's not the end of the story, because he rose again on the third day for our justification. Christmas is about the coming into the world of the Son of God, the first advent, to be born as the child Jesus. And without Jesus, Christmas is nothing but an orgy of pagan consumerism. People sometimes say, well, Christmas is for children. Well, it's not just for children. It's for sinners, because without the incarnation of God the Son, without his death and without his resurrection, without the first advent, there would be no hope for you or for me, either in this life or in the life to come. Jesus is God's free gift. God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave that which is most precious to him, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God's free gift offered to the likes of you and for me. And the exact words of the angel to Joseph was that this child will save his people from their sins. Not that he might save his people from their sins, but he will save his people from their sins. And there lies our assurance as believers today. He will. He, the incarnate Son of God, would grow into manhood 
and he would do it. He who had made the universe would accomplish your salvation and mine on the cross of Calvary. And it's no longer a question of he will do it. He has done it. He did it 2,000 years ago, and he made announcement of that when he had finished treading the wine press by himself on the cross at Calvary. He made that triumphant cry, it is finished. Redemption is finished. The work of salvation is finished. No loose ends to be tied up. Nothing that we can add to it except to come by faith and believe in him. And at Christmas, we remember the coming into the world of the child Jesus, coming to do what you and I individually or collectively are simply unable to do. The angel's words were fulfilled when Jesus, who had grown to manhood, cried out on the cross, it is finished. He had completed the work, and work it was, in the words of Jesus. He had completed the work that the Father had given him to do. He had saved his people. He had brought blessings into this dark and sin-sick world, and nothing can ever, ever undo that work. Somebody told me on Friday that in China they're going to rewrite the Bible can you imagine it, rewriting the Bible? Uh, my mind is agog. Which parts are they going to take out? Which parts are they going to delete? What are they going to uh, add? How can you add to perfection? All men are like grass, and all their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The word of the Lord stands forever. We are saved by grace. We're upheld on uh, life's journey by grace, and finally we are received into the arms of Jesus, the one who, as Paul put it so eloquently, loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that this evening, that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me? He who is the light of the world, not one light amongst many, but the light of this dark and sin-sick world. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessings to these thoughts and meditations on his word. Eternal and ever-blessed God, we thank you for the light of the world. We thank you for Jesus. We were living in ignorance, going about our daily business and you came into this world to seek and to save that which is lost, and we're all lost, O oh Lord, until we are found by you. And we thank you that through the Holy Spirit you are still seeking, seeking your order to save to the uttermost. And we trust that as your word has gone forth this day, this Lord's day, that it will not have returned to you void, but will have accomplished the purpose for which you sent it, and that there would be much rejoicing in the presence of the angels today over a multitude of men, women, and boys and girls taken from the kingdom of darkness and brought irrevocably into the kingdom of light to know he who is the light of the world as their own personal Lord and Savior. Forgive us for anything said today that's not in conformity with your word. May the glory be yours and the blessings ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.